This is Space Time, Series 20, Episode 26, for broadcast on the 5th of April, 2017. Space Time is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You can download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast just about everywhere, including iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, direct from spacetimewithstuartgary.com, or from your favourite podcast download provider. Spacetime is also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., around the world through TuneIn Radio, and as in-flight entertainment aboard Virgin Australia. Coming up on Spacetime... A new explanation for the accelerating expansion of the universe without dark energy, a new search for the mysterious planet 9, and discovery of a strange new type of cosmic blast. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. A team of scientists have come up with a new way of explaining the apparent expansion of the universe without the need for including that mysterious force called dark energy. The team claim it's all down to the large-scale structure of the cosmos. Under existing cosmological models, dark energy is thought to make up about 68% of the universe. And another mysterious substance known as dark matter makes up a further 27%. That leaves just 5% of the universe composed of the ordinary matter of the standard model of particle physics. The stuff galaxies, stars, planets, people, dogs, cats, cars, trees and houses are made of. The new hypothesis, reported in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, claims standard models of the universe fail to take into account its changing structure, but that once this is done, the need for dark energy disappears. The universe began in a Big Bang some 13.8 billion years ago, and it's been expanding ever since. The key piece of evidence for this expansion is known as Hubble's Law, which is based on observations of galaxies. Put simply, it states that on average, the speed with which a galaxy moves away from us is proportional to its distance. In other words, the further a galaxy is away, the faster it's moving from us. Astronomers can measure this velocity of recession by looking at lines in the spectrum of a galaxy. These lines get shifted more and more towards the red end of the spectrum the faster the galaxy you're studying is moving away from us. By measuring the velocities of galaxies back in the 1920s, Edwin Hubble, the dude they named the telescope after, was able to conclude that the universe is expanding and that by running the movie backwards, it must have begun its life as a vanishingly small point which then exploded, hence the Big Bang. In the second half of the 20th century, astronomers found evidence for an invisible substance they called dark matter by observing that something extra in the way of mass was needed to explain the motion of stars within galaxies. Then in the 1990s, astronomers were measuring a specific type of exploding star called a thermonuclear or type 1a supernova. These occur when a stellar corpse known as a white dwarf is in a binary system with another star and the white dwarf sucks so much material from its binary companion that it reaches about 1.4 times the mass of the Sun, a figure known in astrophysics as the Chandrasekhar limit. Time for a bit of background. Stars resist collapsing due to what's called hydrostatic equilibrium. In other words, the downwards force of gravity trying to collapse the star 
is matched by the outwards force of energy generated by hydrogen nuclear fusion in the star's core. White dwarfs remain stable, resisting gravitational collapse, thanks to what's called electron degeneracy pressure. Electron degeneracy pressure is a quantum mechanical effect caused by the Pauli exclusion principle, which states that two fermions, in this case electrons, can't occupy the same state at the same time. So not all electrons can be at the minimum energy level. Instead, electrons occupy a band of different energy levels. However, once the mass of a white dwarf exceeds 1.4 solar masses, the Chandrasekhar limit, then the amount of pressure on the electrons becomes so great, it forces them into the atomic nuclei, causing the white dwarf to undergo a thermonuclear explosion known as a Type 1a supernova. Because all Type 1a supernova happen at the same Chandrasekhar limit, they all explode with the same amount of luminosity, and so their brightness is purely dependent on how far away they are from us. This allows astronomers to use them as standard candles to measure cosmic distances by the inverse square law. Observations of Type 1a supernovae during the 1990s showed that the expansion rate of the universe was accelerating. Something, which scientists refer to as dark energy, was causing the rate of expansion to increase. Now, this has important implications for the ultimate fate of the universe. Not enough dark energy would cause gravity to take over, eventually reversing the expansion, resulting in the universe eventually crashing back into itself in what astronomers call a big crunch. However, with just the right amount of dark energy to balance gravity, the universe would reach a steady state, an equilibrium. However, based on existing measurements for dark energy's expansion of the universe, neither of these options are likely. Instead, the universe will either keep expanding until all the other galaxies disappear from our view over the cosmic horizon, and one by one, the stars run out of fuel and turn off, resulting in the universe undergoing what scientists refer to as a big freeze. Alternatively, if dark energy continues to increase and the rate of expansion continues to accelerate, it would cause the galaxies not just to disappear from view over the cosmic horizon, but also locally, dark energy would cause galaxies to begin spreading apart. Eventually, planets will be torn from their stars, and even atoms will be ripped apart at the subatomic level, with electrons and quarks being torn away from each other in a process astronomers call the Big Rip. And while the Big Freeze may take a few trillions of years to eventuate a big rip would likely occur far sooner, on scales of just a few billion years from now. And that's where this new study comes in. It's researchers questioning the need for the existence of dark energy and suggesting an alternative explanation instead. They argue that conventional models of cosmology, the study of the origin and evolution of the universe, rely on approximations that ignore the universe's structure and where matter is assumed to have a uniform density. They say that Albert Einstein's equations of general relativity that describe the expansion of the universe are so complex mathematically that for a hundred years, no solutions accounting for the effect of cosmic structures have been found. Scientists know from very precise supernova observations that the universe is expanding and accelerating in that expansion. But at the same time, scientists rely on coarse approximations to Einstein's equations, which may introduce serious side effects such as the need for dark energy in the models designed to fit the observational data. In practice, normal and dark matter appear to fill the universe with this foam-like structure, where galaxies are located on thin walls between bubbles and are grouped into superclusters. In contrast, the insides of these bubbles are almost empty of both kinds of matter. 
Using computer simulations to model the effects of gravity on the distribution of millions of particles of dark matter, the scientists reconstructed the evolution of the universe, including the early clumping of matter and the formation of large-scale structure. Unlike conventional simulations with a smoothly expanding universe, taking the structure into account has led to a model where different regions of the cosmos expand at different rates. The average expansion rate, though, is consistent with present observations, which suggest an overall acceleration. Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity is fundamental to understanding the way the universe evolves, and the authors don't question its validity. Instead, they question the validity of the approximate solutions. Their findings, therefore, rely on a mathematical conjecture which permits the differential expansion of space, still consistent with general relativity, and they show how the formation of complex structures of matter affects this cosmic expansion. The authors claim these issues were previously swept under the rug, but by taking them into account, one can explain the accelerated expansion of the universe without the need for dark energy. If these findings are upheld, they'll have a significant impact on models of the universe, its ultimate fate, and the direction of research in physics. The new work also follows on from the research of David Wilshire from the University of Canterbury. Back in 2007, Wiltshire also suggested that the structure of the universe needs to be considered in any evaluation of dark energy. Reporting in the journal Physical Review Letters, Wiltshire concluded that existing ideas about dark energy failed to take into account the large-scale structure of the universe and how that affects the fabric of space-time. He also pointed out that when scientists first used Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity equations on the cosmic scale, they didn't know what the universe actually looked like or how matter was distributed across it. According to Wiltshire, early cosmology solutions assumed a very simple structure where the universe is uniformly smooth and featureless. Back in 2007, Wiltshire also stated that early cosmology solutions assumed a very simple structure where the universe is uniformly smooth and featureless, evolving in the same way in all directions. He says these early solutions are still used in standard cosmology today. However, astronomers now know the large-scale structure of the universe actually comprises thin filaments and larger connecting nodes, both full of stars, galaxies, galaxy clusters and superclusters. These filaments and nodes surround vast empty voids hundreds of millions of light-years across. When combined, they give the universe its bubble-foam-like large-scale structure. Wiltshire says once the true structure of the cosmos is taken into account, it dramatically complicates the standard view of the universe. Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity shows how space curves and time slows down around massive objects, in the same way a trampoline will stretch around a heavy bowling ball placed in the centre of it. However, Wilshire believes this only represents the nodes and filaments which contain bound systems like galaxies. He says the curvature of space-time changes as you move across an expanding void. And since mass slows down time, time actually ticks much faster inside a void, which is where most of the universe's empty space is located, compared to time in the filaments and connecting nodes where the galaxies are located. So, the acceleration attributed to dark energy only becomes apparent when measuring it from a galaxy, and would thus disappear if measured from the centre of a void. Wiltshire says our existing ideas about dark energy are still based on a hypothetical smooth cosmology in which mass is distributed evenly throughout the universe. He says once this uneven distribution of matter in the real universe is taken into account, dark energy is no longer needed to explain the accelerating expansion of the cosmos. I'm Stuart Gary. This is Space Time.
Astronomers are inviting the general public to help them search for the mysterious Planet Nine, believed to exist in the dark outer reaches of the solar system. The new citizen science project, led by Dr Brad Tucker from the Australian National University, was launched at a BBC stargazing live broadcast from the Siding Spring Observatory in Outback, New South Wales. Back in 2006, the planet Pluto was demoted from planetary status to become a dwarf planet. That meant our solar system now only had eight planets. However, in 2014, the first tantalising evidence for a possible new ninth planet was made by astronomers Chad Trujillo and Scott Shepard, who identified several trans-Neptunian objects in unusual orbits. Trans-Neptunian objects are stellar bodies orbiting the Sun beyond Neptune. These include Pluto and other Kuiper Belt objects, as well as objects in the more distant Oort cloud, which extends into interstellar space. The objects observed by Trujillo and Shepard are most likely to have been placed in their current orbital positions by gravitational interactions with a large Neptune-sized planet, about 8 to 10 times the mass and at least 2 to 4 times the diameter of the Earth. This hypothetical planet 9 would have a highly elliptical orbit around the Sun, with an orbital period of some 15,000 Earth years. Its highly elongated orbit would bring it to within 200 astronomical units of the Sun during its closest approach, known as perihelion, and as far as 1,200 astronomical units during aphelion, its most distant orbital position from the Sun. An astronomical unit is about 150 million kilometres, or 8 light minutes, the average distance between the Earth and the Sun. Now, if it exists during perihelion, Planet 9 should be in the general direction of the southerly areas of the constellation Serpens and Libra while it will be in the general direction of the constellation Taurus during aphelion. Tucker says anyone who helps find Planet 9 will be allowed to work with the ANU astronomers to validate the discovery through the International Astronomical Union. The ANU project will allow citizen scientists to use a website to search hundreds of thousands of images taken by the ANU SkyMapper telescope at Siding Spring. The 1.3-metre SkyMap is the only telescope in the world mapping the entire southern skies. Finding Planet 9 will involve citizen volunteers scanning the SkyMapper images online to look for differences. Tucker expects people will also find and identify other mysterious objects, including asteroids, comets and new dwarf planets like Pluto. However, according to International Astronomical Union rules, if you do discover a new asteroid or dwarf planet, you can't actually name it after yourself, but you could name it after your partner, children or siblings. Tucker says astronomers have long discussed the likelihood of finding a ninth planet at the outer edge of the solar system, but as yet, nothing's been found. So what we've done is we turned the search for planet nine, the search for this other planet in our solar system, using the thousands of images we had into a project with the public. So instead of relying on machines, relying on the power of humans. When Clive Tombaugh first began looking for what he thought was planet nine, we eventually call that Pluto and it's now a dwarf planet, he used a comparator and I remember that the line was always you'd go to work in the morning and Clive would be there and you just hear the click 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 as he went through hundreds and hundreds of images using this blink comparator and one day the clicking suddenly stopped <laughs> well one day hopefully the clicking will stop on the website because we found it <laughs> <laughs> how do you search for a planet by looking at thousands of images. Do you do the same sort of thing that Tom Bauer did? Uh, not quite. So what we've done is we use SkyMapper. So SkyMapper is a robotic telescope at Siding Spring. And because it repeatedly images the sky, what we've done is on a part of the sky that's had repeat images, instead of clicking or blinking the images back and forth, we color-coded it such that if an object moves, it will have a red dot, green dot, and a blue dot. But if it is stationary, i.e. a star, it's just white. So we're 
we're looking for a color spot the difference. Oh, that makes it easy. Exactly. So you don't have to do the blinking or anything like that. You really just look at the image and you see a red dot, blue dot, and green dot stand out, or sometimes it's just two of them. And from that, you'll know that something's moved across the sky. And then I guess the issue is determining exactly what that was, whether it's something nearby, like an asteroid, or, or a bit further afield, like a comet, or something even further afield, like a mysterious missing planet nine. Exactly. And so obviously we're going to find things that are already known. So it's not just that everything that we discover is a new object. We have to make sure it's not. We don't want to rediscover something that's already been discovered. So we use the information of how fast it's moved, where it's moving its orbit to put some limits and ideas on what kind of object it could be. And you've got some high-powered help to launch this project. Exactly. So we've launched this as part of BBC Stargazing Live. So Stargazing Live is a program where over a few days between scientific stories, talks, and live stargazing, the astronomy world comes to life. And so now they are here at Siding Spring, and as part of this is this search for Planet Nine. I remember last year they were looking for pulsars, and they were at Jodrell Bank for that, and that was very exciting. I was listening to the Jodcast, which is one of my favorite podcasts, and the team there were just over the moon about, literally, I guess, um, what was happening. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, and in the same atmosphere as here, I get regular check-ins. People pop in, you know, what have you found? Have you found anything interesting? How's it going? And really, the response has been great. I mean, we've gone through a million classifications in just a short amount of time. And it mustn't hurt to have star power, in this case, both figuratively and literally, in the name of Brian Cox helping you guys. Exactly. It gives an added boost, and it really spreads our project, spreads the goal, spreads the message to a larger audience, because that's ultimately what we want, is we want to have as many people involved as possible be a part of this scientific endeavor and discovery. Tell me a little bit about Planet Nine. How do we know there's a Planet Nine out there? So right now, the evidence for Planet Nine is purely mathematical or, or, or theoretical in that when you look at the orbits of the other dwarf planets, so the Pluto's friends, as it were, in order to explain their very elliptical, oddly shaped orbits and their kind of distribution, so they're kind of lopsided, that if you put a large planet or you have a large planet on the edges of the solar system, it makes complete sense. I think there were, what, something like nine or... 13 Kuiper Belt objects that were in such a weird position that something gravitationally must have interacted with them to put them in that position. Exactly, and in fact, when there was a new one discovered uh, six months ago, after the calculation of Planet Nine, it fit exactly in with what Planet Nine would cause. So now we're finding new things that fit in already with other predictions, and in fact, this is exactly how Neptune was discovered. Yes, and the big battle between British and German scientists as to who would see it first. Exactly, and so you know, you make the prediction and you go and observe it. So that's exactly what we're doing. We've made the prediction and now we're going out to try and observe and find it. What do we think Planet Nine is? How big would it be? Roughly how far out would it be? So, so we believe Planet Nine to be anywhere between four to ten times the mass of the Earth and about four times as wide. So we call it what we call a super Earth. So this is somewhere between an Earth and Neptune, kind of this uh, a transition planet, we believe. And it's on a really elliptical far out orbit. So it's about 900 times further than the Earth orbits the sun. So it takes about 20,000 years to do one orbit around the sun. And this is a lot further out than where, say, the Voyager 1 spacecraft now is, which is in interstellar space. It's beyond the heliosphere. It's gravitationally bound to the sun still, but it, it really is traveling through interstellar space. Exactly. It is it's on the far reaches of the solar system. And some models even say that it could have existed in our solar system on the outside and then been flung out. So in fact, it's just traveling away and maybe no longer even gravitationally bound to our solar system. It's a very mysterious 
this object. When uh, Jupiter and Saturn were engaged in planetary migration, first moving inwards and then outwards again, there was a lot of mathematics showing that there could have been three rather than two planets where Neptune and Uranus now are. And as Jupiter and Saturn moved back out again, they literally flung all three of those planets further out. Neptune and Uranus swapped positions and moved out a bit further. And the third planet was either flung into deep space, where it's now a rogue planet, or else it's uh, roughly where the um, mysterious Planet Nine could be. Yeah, it's interesting when you start putting all these little pieces together, they kind of start pointing to the same thing. And so what we kind of realized, what I kind of realized is that because SkyMapper had already covered the entire southern sky where this planet may exist, if it exists, we already have an image of it. So we don't have to go put effort into doing new data or new telescopes, new survey. We already have it. So we don't want to be the person that has it but misses out. So this is why we turn to the public to help us search for this. It's exciting. People are passionate about planets and Pluto's status as a planet. So why not engage everyone as part of this conversation, as part of this discovery to show what we're doing and show what we're learning? And of course, one of the astronomers who were involved in the demotion of Pluto from the status of it being the ninth planet in our solar system is one of the big pushes of this new project to look for a planet nine because his maths were some of the maths involved in helping determine that there were hyperbolic objects out there which could qualify. Yeah, Mike Brown, the uh, AKA Pluto killer, is, is, you know, he's being a big proponent of it, and he clearly knows what he's talking about and knows what he's doing. Now, you know, like with every piece of work, not everything is, we think, completely accurate, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't look. It takes very little effort to look, so it's very low risk with very high potential reward for understanding our place in our solar system. If people want to get involved in this project, how can they do it? What's the best way the public can help? So the best way is to go onto the website. It's planet9search.org. Nine, either the number or spelt out. And when you go on there, it's a little tutorial to show what we're looking for, how to do it. And then it's really looking at an image and we say, is there a color dot here? And then you say, yes, if there is. And then you point to that dot. So you can actually do it from your iPad or your phone on the train or the bus. So, you know, when you have a free five minutes and you're like, oh, I might just go discover a planet. What other time can you do that? It reminds me very much of the Galaxy Zoo project. That's right. I mean, Galaxy Zoo, Zoo Universe really started this engagement of citizen science and it's really revolutionized how we do things. You know, we're now able to use people to train computers to be better and we're able to harness the power of people's perceptions and cognitive capabilities to do very complicated tasks extremely quickly. And the one thing we learned from projects like Zoo Universe is that there are some things humans just naturally still do better than computers, that we can just determine these things that computers can't understand what we're doing. And especially something like Planet Nine, Mm. where the parameters of how it could exist are so huge. To train a computer to do all those calculations, you would spend more time writing that algorithm to do it than to have people search for the data. That's Dr. Brad Tucker from the Australian National University. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. If you want more Space Time, check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and junk on the web I find interesting, important, or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter. And on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com forward slash space time with Stuart Gary.
NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory has discovered a new type of mysterious cosmic explosion. The never-before-seen flash of X-rays was detected through the deepest X-ray image ever obtained. Scientists say the source likely comes from some sort of cataclysmic destructive event, but it could be of a type that astronomers have never seen before. The X-ray source was originally observed back in October 2014 using Chandra's advanced CCD imaging spectrometer. The flaring source was a surprise for astronomers exploring a poorly understood realm of the ultra-faint X-ray universe. Located in a region of the sky known as the Chandra Deep Field South, this X-ray source has remarkable properties. Prior to 2014, the source wasn't detected in X-rays, but it then erupted and became at least a factor of a thousand brighter in just a few hours. Then after about a day, the source faded completely below the sensitivity level of Chandra. Thousands of hours of legacy data from the Hubble and Spitzer Space Telescopes helped determine that the event came from a distant small galaxy located some 10.7 billion light-years away. That's some three-quarters of the way back through space-time. For a few minutes, this X-ray source produced a thousand times more energy than all the stars in this distant galaxy. Ever since discovering the source, astronomers have been struggling to try and understand its origin, describing it as being like having a jigsaw puzzle without all the pieces. Two of the three main possibilities to explain this X-ray source involve gamma-ray bursts, powerful explosions triggered by the core-collapse supernova of a massive star, or by the merger of a neutron star with either another neutron star or with a black hole. If the jet's pointed towards the Earth, a burst of gamma rays is detected. Then, as the jet expands, it loses energy, producing weaker, more isotropic radiation at X-ray and other wavelengths. Now, according to the researchers, it's just possible that this gamma-ray burst either isn't pointed directly towards the Earth, or it actually occurred somewhere behind rather than inside the small galaxy. A third possibility for the Chandra Deep Field South X-ray source is that it's actually a medium-sized black hole in the process of shredding a white dwarf star. However, while none of these scenarios perfectly fit the data, the authors admit they've rarely seen any of the proposed possibilities in actual data, and so they don't really understand any of them all that well. Other than this one instance, this mysterious X-ray source wasn't seen during the two and a half months of exposure time spread over 17 years, which Chandra has been observing the deep-filled south region. Whatever it is, lots more observations will be needed in order to work out exactly what it is scientists are seeing. Future X-ray observations using Chandra and other X-ray observatories, such as the planned Chinese Einstein probe, may also reveal the same phenomenon from other objects. If the X-ray source was caused by a gamma-ray burst triggered by the merger of a neutron star with a black hole or another neutron star, then gravitational waves would also have been produced. And if such an event were to occur closer to Earth, it may be detectable with LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. That's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, your favourite podcast download provider, or direct from spacetimewithstuartgary.com. The show's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C., around the world on TuneIn Radio and as part of Virgin Australia's in-flight entertainment. If you want more space time, check out our blog where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos and junk on the web I find interesting, important or amusing. 
Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter. And on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com forward slash spacetime with Stuart Gary. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts or Audio Boom. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 